This morning I walked over to the retreat center here from the teacher housing that's near Gaston Pond. And some of you who were out this morning probably noticed it was so uh, surprisingly warm. And then there was that, that subtle breeze that was rustling the fall leaves and, and the, the, the breeze was making this, these subtle ripples along over Gaston Pond there. And as I was standing there, walking, walking and then standing there, really gazing upon this beautiful scenery, just really struck me and maybe a similar thing struck you today of uh, a real beautiful day on this planet today, don't you think? It's really quite striking how beautiful it was. And I kind of want to remind us that, that here we find ourselves situated, situated on this beautiful planet. Beautiful yet troubled. It's a troubled world we live in too. And for my practice, especially when I'm on a long retreat, what's been important for me is how do I stay connected with that beautiful yet troubled world? Because I think it's so important. Yes, yeah, seclusion. Seclusion is so essential. The, the quality of seclusion is what allows this practice to unfold in a profound way on long retreat. And yet there's something important about that connection. I know for me at times on retreat, I can start to feel isolated and also, I don't know if anyone else has sometimes had this feeling of like, what am I doing here? I feel so selfish doing this. You know, there's this whole beautiful yet troubled world out there. So how to navigate this, how to possibly, if it's important to you, keep this connection going. And I think uh, we can hear the Buddha, you could say the Buddha of early Buddhism speak to this. And there's a, uh, and then the miracle discourses, there's a sutta called the Firebrand Sutta that I want to just share with you, a uh, part of that, that sutta with you. And he says, practitioners, there are these four types of individuals to be found existing in the world. Which four? The one who practices neither for their own benefit nor for that of others. And then there is the one who practices for the benefit of others, but not for their own benefit. The one who practices for their own benefit, but not for that of others. And then there is the one who practices for their own benefit and for the benefit of others. And then he continues later on and says, just as from a cow comes milk, and then from milk curds, and then you can make from curds butter and from butter there can be this refinement, right, into ghee. And from ghee, the skimmings of ghee, even more refined. And these, and of these, the skimmings of ghee are, reckon, are reckoned the foremost. 
the Supreme. And in the same way of these four, the individual who practices for their own benefit and for that of others is the foremost, the chief, the most outstanding, the highest, and the supreme. So here we have this encouragement to practice not only for ourselves, but for others. Both of these, it's the, the skillful way. And when I, when I hear the Buddha giving these teachings, I feel like he's talking about, again, the power of intention. Just as we've been talking about placing the intention, the willingness to be present, the willingness to be mindful, placing the intention to be kind, to be compassionate. And it's the intention that is so powerful because it shapes the mind and the heart over time. And in the same way, there might be something about placing this intention, this altruistic intention that includes us, that it has a kind of power to it that clarifies actually what we're doing here. And so tonight I'd like to share with you some reflections just on this, just on refining this intention to not only practice for ourselves, hopefully you're practicing for yourself, but for others as well. And it's, I have to acknowledge, it's in some ways maybe a strange talk because practically I'm, I'm going to be inviting you to do, do something different that might be just take up at most maybe a minute of your time every day on retreat. Yet I think it can have a really significant impact. And it's true, you know, a lot of the reflections I offer for Many of you, it might be just a reminder, a remembrance of what's important in the practice. And for others, it might be something new that you have to reflect on to see if it fits or not. And the way I'd like to begin is pointing out that to practice for oneself and others is intimately intertwined with wisdom. Because in essence, it's just the way things are. This practice can't be any other way than the practice for oneself and, what other, and, and for others. And the way I want to point this out is that often um, we can frame our practice, I know I, my mind does this all the time, around a kind of delusion, just as Andre was talking about all these different flavors of delusion last night. And in particular, it can be the delusion of independence. And so let me give an example of what I mean by that, this delusion of independence. And you hopefully will recognize how this is such a common perception of the mind. So for example, you come here from maybe Canada or Australia or New York or California or Switzerland, here you are in that place, and you come here to IMS. And then here, here you are at IMS, and then you once again find yourself here at IMS. Same person, right? And then sometimes you might find yourself here in the meditation hall, or in your room, or in the dining hall. And you have certain days, right? You have maybe a good day, a bad day, a bad morning, a good morning, 
but it's just you, it's right? It's the same old person moving through the world, an independent person, right? We got me here, and then we got the world out there. I am this independent being that moves about in this world. Can you relate to this perception? It's a pretty common one. <laughs> but hopefully, rather, what we're beginning to see with this practice is that it's just, it's just the unfolding of conditions, arising and passing and intertwining and interacting. Sights, sounds, tastes, smells, thoughts, sensations. You might notice they give rise to movements in the heart, movements in the mind, which give rise to movements in the body. They interact and intertwine, they undulate. And when the mind looks closely, there can't, we can't find anything that's fixed or so solid or static or anything that's actually independent of interaction, of intertwining. And of course, what does the mind do, does is it takes a certain set of those conditions and it generalizes them and says, me, mine. So what I'm pointing out is, you could say rather, we live in an inter interdependent world, this quality of interdependence. And just to be clear, this is really a notion that's found later on in, in Buddhism. And in particular, it, it fully flowers in Huayan Buddhism in, in China. Um, you could say it's, it's taking this teaching of dependent origination to a next step. It's really just another facet of, of not-self. This, this sense that there's not a fixed independent me. And the image that's often used, the, the, there's, and there's many uh, kind of different ways of, 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 there are many images that give the same kind of uh, feel to it. And one image is Indra, Indra's net, which comes from the Avatamsaka Sutra, which many of you are possibly familiar with. And the, the image is, is uh, to imagine that there's this net that, that spreads out in all directions, infinitely in all directions. And in each node of the net, there is a jewel. And if you were to look into that jewel, you would see reflected in that jewel all the other infinite jewels within that net. That is the quality of interdependence. This reflecting, this, this intertwining, this interacting. This might be more along the lines of really more of a sense of the unfolding of experience rather than here I am an independent being moving about in the world. And I'd like to share with you a quote which I feel expresses in different words this kind of wisdom, this wisdom of interdependence. It comes from uh, Little Watson, a uh, uh, Australian Aboriginal elder and activist who put it, if you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is tied with mine, 
then let us work together. Our liberation is tied together, intertwined. There's no other way it could be. It's interesting, you know, this quote was attributed to Little Watson and somebody asked her about this and she, and she said, oh, actually there would be something really inaccurate to attribute it just to me. You know, this should be, uh, she, she, she said it really from the kind of this Aboriginal activist group that she was working with in the 1970s. So I really appreciate the, the depth that, that she holds this, this understanding. And I think it's, it speaks to, there really could be a broader dimension to awakening. Andrea last night gave us this simple and clear definition of awakening, a mind free of greed, hatred, and delusion. And that might have resonances and ripple out in the world in, in ways that are not just about me as an independent being. A liberation that's tied with the liberation of, of others. So our liberations are tied together. And those of you um, familiar with Tibetan Buddhism probably hear what this is all about. You know, the, the, the term used uh, often, and that is uh, bodhicitta, this, this aspiration to awaken for the benefit of all beings, or at least relative bodhicitta is talked about that way. And it's so central. I had a friend of mine who was a Tibetan Buddhist practitioner and he became really interested in, in doing Vipassana retreats. And on the, his first Vipassana retreat, the thing that totally freaked him out was that everybody would sit in meditation before putting forth this altruistic intention that this made this go for the benefit of all beings. He's like, what's up with this? What, what are you guys doing out there? <laughs> that was completely crazy. <laughs> He's probably right. <laughs> and what I want to point out once again is that I'm inviting you just to continue with the same exact practice that you're doing day after day. doesn't need to change that. However, however you're holding that, whether it be simply bringing this mindful attention to experience as best as possible, to notice what's arising. Or I loved Winnie's frame that you might remember that that space that we're in of one and a half arrows. <laughs> that that space where we can notice what is going on and, and the attitude of the mind. How is the mind relating to this moment? And then within that, just adding something really simple and practical. Maybe at the beginning of your day or at the beginning of each sitting or at the beginning of each sitting and walking. Giving voice to this intention. May, may this practice, this practice period, go for the benefit of all beings. And then you just engage in your practice. And then maybe at the end, 
sharing the merit of that practice. And if anything, the only thing I add to that is allowing a, a felt sense of that to be there when it wants to be. Because sometimes it can give, for me at least, a little bit different feeling of what this practice and path is all about. But very brief. Or sometimes for me, it's part of the ritual of bowing. It's intertwined with that. And to remember, just like in, especially the practice of like metta or loving kindness, this word that I keep on coming back to, bhavana, cultivation, it's messy, right? So sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't. Maybe you have one of those days where you wish humanity wasn't around. <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's still placing the intention and then continuing, allowing it to be messy. And for me, it's helpful just to keep it that simple that I don't have to think about it. Because there's something about the repetition, and I think this is what's so wonderful on long retreat, is just doing this every day. The repetition of that makes a big difference. It's like the, we're putting this nutrient in the soil to allow the flower of awakening to, to blossom. And the image that I hold in my mind comes from um, another of my, my teachers. And it's, it's to imagine that here we are on this boat. And what I'm inviting you to do is just to make a simple turn in the rudder of the boat. We're talking just a few inches in the rudder, such a subtle, simple thing. Just a small turn in the rudder. But over a long distance, a simple turn in the rudder can make a vast difference. Like we went out, you know, just beyond Boston here. We could either end up in the UK, maybe Scotland, or in West Africa, like in Sierra Leone or Senegal. Just from, just, just from that small turn. That's what we're doing here. We're just turning the rudder just a little bit to allow this mind and body to, to move in a different direction, in the direction towards awakening. You know, if other people I know, sometimes it's not so much using those words, may this go to the benefit of all beings, but having a feeling sense of giving the gift of your practice every day however you imagine that. And for me, I find that relieving because I find it so exhausting when my mind's trying to figure out what I can get out of retreat and hoping that I'm going to get something great out of a three-month retreat or a six-week retreat. Is this really worth it all this time? But if I'm just giving it, then I don't have to worry about that, right? I'm just giving a gift every day. It's simpler than that. It can be relieving. This offering to others. And I want to go back to, to point out that I think the brilliance, at least, of, of the Buddha in this, this uh, discourse I shared with you is that it's not just about others, it's about for ourselves and others. 
And I, I want to point this out because sometimes, possibly some of us have a conditioning where there can be such a habitual tendency of putting others before ourselves. And there can be something really unskillful about that, about that activity of putting others before ourselves in a way that we forget about ourselves. One place that, which I find it, it's interesting where this dynamic uh, became very clear. This is around some um, models of moral development. And some of you might know about this. There was a, a man by the name of Kohlberg who was studying moral development and, and people and uh, made this whole moral development model out of his studies. And a woman by the name of Carol Gilligan came along. Actually, she wrote a book about this in a different voice and basically said to Kohlberg, actually, I think she was a, an apprentice of Kohlberg's and said, listen, there's something really messed up about your study because it's all men. And moral development in women actually is um, quite different and really points out these kind of different flavors that she was seeing. And, and one of the things that she really pointed out for real moral maturity was this ability to balance the needs of oneself with the needs of others. That moral maturity only flowers when there's both of those. It's really quite striking. So again, it's impossible for us to do this practice in a vacuum. It's impossible for it to be only about me. It's just not the way things are. And I'd like to give some examples of this, of, of how we can see this, how we can see this just with our practice here and how it unfolds. Just on a basic level, I want to point out, your, simply your willingness to be here has a sim significant impact on others. Like I know people who have done the three-month retreats, and when the fall comes around, and they'll share this reflection with me. Wow, you know, now that the fall is coming, uh, coming on, I, I, my heart is so much with the people who are sitting. I'm so moved that the three-month retreat is still going on and that people are, are doing it. And it m makes a difference in their life to know that people are still sitting in this retreat because of the transformation it had in their lives and because of the power of that transformation. And there might be some people that you know that you're close to that know that you're here and that you're practicing and they might be moved by that in some kind of way of what you're doing. And maybe for some of you who have done this retreat before and then took a year off, you, you might remember this time of year and remembering the people who are practicing. And it's true, right? Then there's the other people in your life that just think you're crazy, bonkers. <laughs> Probably freaking some people out in your life. But on the whole, at least I want to conjecture, it's mostly a good thing. 
and often uh, the staff here will will say that it, it's sometimes a chance for them to practice in a different way because there's a now a, a big chunk of time where they don't have to have this transition of retreat after retreat and they can settle in in a different way of being here. So this practice reaches much farther than just your own life. Also in terms of what I'd call the kind of healing that can happen on a long retreat like this, how it can reach out beyond our own lives. One example of this, it reminds me of when I was working with a a woman who I was doing uh, uh, more trauma work with people individually. And it was a woman who had been in kind of the cycle of in and out of these these, uh, abusive relationships and and then this uh, healing process really began to have a momentum in her life. And uh, when we continued to sense into it and to take some time with it, especially the healing process, what she shared is that she was realizing that she was healing a dynamic that stretched back for generations in her family in various forms. And this feeling started to arise of stopping a dynamic that went way beyond her own life. It was interesting, she would share dreams with me that she was having during this time. Dreams from kind of her her worldview, a a palpable inner sense of being being supported by her ancestors, especially the, the women in her family. And this feeling of feeling how proud they were of her and that somehow they were being healed by her healing. A kind of healing that extended beyond her separate sense of self and was intertwined with a sense of this interdependent process. And maybe some of you here have noticed such a feeling, you know, in your own healing process. It's much bigger than just your own life. It's vaster than that. What a cool thing that we're doing here. We're putting an end to old habitual patterns by this practice. That's powerful, not only for our own lives, but for generations. This practice, it reaches much farther than just our own lives. I think it gives a, a, also a sense of maybe one way of, yet another way of understanding rebirth and what it is to have something no longer be born. Someone asked Jogyam Trinkpa, what gets reborn? He said, your bad habits. <laughs> what a cool thing to allow those old habitual patterns that we've inherited to no longer be born. It's a beautiful gift for the world that extends farther than our own lives. And for me, when I keep that in mind and come back to Kind of this process that the Buddha shares, it gives a different emotional power to these words I want to share with you. Whether you take rebirth to be something that's literal and very important to you or something that maybe is more poetic. 
And he asks this question. What do you think, practitioners? Which is more? The stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This or the water in the four great oceans? And then they respond. The monastics say, as we understand the Dhamma taught by the blessed one, venerable sir, the stream of tears that we have shed as we roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable. This alone is more than the four, than the water in the four great oceans. So many tears in this troubled world, whether they be intergenerationally or from past lives, because of habits of the mind and what we do to each other through these habits of the mind. I hope you're hearing from this quote, what a sacred and powerful thing that you're engaged in here. What a powerful thing to bring into the world. You can say, and not only our families, but collectively in our societies that we find ourselves thrown into. This, this precious chance to put an end to old, unskillful, habitual habits. How does this work? What's the sense of this? I'd like to share with you a quote from Krishnamurti that I think helps clarify this interdependent dynamic. He says, if you don't know how your mind reacts, if your mind is not aware of its own activities, you will never find out what society is. You may read books on sociology, study social sciences, but if you don't know how your own mind works, you cannot actually understand what society is because your mind is a part of society. It is society. Your reactions, your beliefs, the clothes you wear, the things you do and don't do and what you think, society is made up of all this. It is the replica of what is going on in your own mind. So your mind is not apart from society. It is not distinct from it. All this is society and you are part of it. There is no you separate from society. So all those messed up, crazy thoughts and tendencies that you're probably seeing, it's not about you. (laughs) You're watching the unfolding of society. That's what that is. It's collective greed, collective hatred and delusion. 
And we see the forms it takes, as Andrea mentioned last night, these collective views, the, the systemic racism, the, the patriarchy, environmental degradation. Mind is society. It's a crazy thought, don't you think, to think that, I'm just going to talk about the United States, of course there's you know, all kinds of dynamics in other countries, but since I grew up in this country, you know, it's a crazy thought to think that one could grow up in this, in this country, the United States, and not have a mind that's been condi- conditioned by systemic racism or sexism or environmental degradation. That's a deluded thought. <laughs> The mind is society. The blindness is the assumptions. This is why I'm so grateful for this practice, to begin to clarify these dynamics of society right here on retreats. You know, that troubled world isn't out there, it's right here, all of it. Like Indra's net, it's interdependent in that way. And you might notice the activity of that internal oppressing, how the mind can be so oppressive to others and ourselves, those judgmental thoughts. Or the internalized oppression, how there's suffering from all those thoughts. And there it is, just that small shift in attention from being lost in that and to notice what it is. Oh, it's just judging. Oh, interesting. Oh, there's society again. Voila. It's not me. (laughs) It's not mine. Oh, yeah. Feeling better than or less than. We can have all kinds of groovy, amazing, meditative experiences. They're important. They're nice. They're groovy. They're fun. (laughs) I like them. But boy, just to see this clearly, what a gift to give to the world that we live in. That, I think, is deeply significant, what you're doing here for this troubled world that we live in. to begin to see the mind rather than to be yanked around by it in a way that causes suffering for others and ourselves. And at the same time, I I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. I'm not saying that this is going to solve anything, solve everything just by sitting here. It's complex, but this is, I think, an essential piece to this whole process. What would it be like just to take a minute every day to acknowledge that, just to turn the rudder just a little bit, to bring that into your practice, to make it broader and to understand that it's so much bigger than your own life. There's so something so deluded about this is just about me and mine. And I find it relieving to remember that none of this has anything to do with me. It's just inheritance. 
And yeah, I have to take responsibility for it. But I can see where it arises from. And maybe just a, since I got time, just a little caveat here. And, and I guess the other reason I want to point this out is, is I do, again, re- remember, be aware, this is my opinion. <laughs> So often with with mindfulness streaming out in so many places in this uh, this world, which is so wonderful, it can also be coupled with a kind of narcissism. For example, Sandy Huntington, who I think lives, I think lives in Massachusetts, wrote this interesting article. I, I love the title. It was a kind of critique of some of this, called "The Triumph of Narcissism." of that when we take only pieces of this practice, we don't have this, you could say this bigger sense, at least to try to, trying to frame it in this practice, this bigger sense of bodhicitta or practicing for others, it can, it can be um, hindered by a sense of narcissism that it's just about me. And notions of happiness that get coupled together with mindfulness also sometimes have this, this delusion around it of a happiness of me in some kind of manner. And there's been really interesting kind of critiques of kind of studies of happiness, which I think are great on one side, but uh, also looking at some of the underbelly of it, which I think uh, speaks to what I'm sharing here. For example, uh, the culture critic, critic uh, Sarah Ahmed points out that many of the notions of happiness that infiltrate these studies She's, she's talking about more general and happiness, but we can see these still these same constructs in these studies of mindfulness is a, is a kind of happiness that is uh, situated in a way that, uh, uh, that so often we can all be blind to, or often many of us, especially in the dominant culture. And she points out that these notions of happiness are often framed as kind of the valuing of a white, middle-class, straight, heterosexual lifestyle. And if you don't have that lifestyle, then what gets start to be framed is some kind of unhappy life. So hopefully you can hear when there's not a clarity of Indra's net, a clarity of interdependence. It can pervade our vision of what freedom and happiness and contentment are about in actually quite oppressive ways. So bringing this in, just turning the rudder a little bit, practicing for ourselves and others. And then I think there's yet another facet to, to this, of it extending out beyond us. I remember, so when I was a Zen monk, um, it was it's okay being a monk. It was, it was good times and bad times. There was actually really bad times. <laughs> I mean, if I was to be honest with you, the darkest times of my life happened when I was a monk. It was like that, and I don't, I'm, probably some of you experienced that, that experience of like you, you feel like your body's moving through life, but it doesn't feel like it's alive. Like just that, just dark, and it was it was tough. And I was trying to find a way to make it through. 
you know, make it through not only the practice, but through my life. And there wasn't much keeping me going. And I think one of the things that uh, allowed me to keep going was I found this tether in my practice. Because, you know, of course, my mind, maybe you, you can notice your mind when you're practicing like this. It just felt like, you know, my practice totally sucked. You know, like, what am I doing in robes? Like, this is ridiculous. I have the craziest mind in the world, and here I am. And maybe you can relate to this. But it was, it was not only that it was going on, but I couldn't see it. There was very weak mindfulness. And my tether was um, just to, to allow a lineage of practice to continue. And there was something so relieving about that, 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 that the, the sense of it, it, it gave a little bo- movement forward in my practice, just to show up, allowed this beautiful practice to continue t- for the next generation. And just that allowed the heart to warm and to soften and to open. Because the lineage was so much vaster than me, so much vaster than, than my small little life. It, it gave power and importance to my practice, regardless of what was going on day after day. And the image I hold around this is uh, actually a, a practice that many of the indigenous peoples uh, did around the Flagstaff, Arizona area, really thousands of years ago, in particular the nomadic tribes in that area. What they would do is, um, and, and they found places like this all over in the Southwest where they would bury corn in a certain place. But the interesting thing is, because of their um, nomadic um, uh, process and how far they would travel, the corn they were burying was not going to be for them. Because by the time they came back to that part of the Southwest, they would have been dead. So they would be walking around offering corn to generations coming after them to find and to be nourished and spending so much of their time making sure to protect this corn and this nourishment for others. What would it be like to see your practice in that sense? To, 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 to protect the corn and the nourishment by continuing to do this practice so not only for our own lives, but for the generations to come. This practice is, is much vaster than just me. It spreads out like Indra's net. And it's just that small turn of the rudder of placing this intention day after day or sit after sit. Because it's a testimony to this wisdom So I'd like to end by sharing with you, uh, uh, comes from the Tibetan tradition, a dedication to Red Tara and remembering that uh, Red Tara is a a manifestation of the deepest wisdom of of compassion. And it goes, throughout my many lives and until this moment, 
whatever virtue I have accomplished, including the merit generated by this practice and all that I will ever attain, this I offer for the welfare of sentient beings. May sickness, war, famine, and suffering be decreased for every living being while their wisdom and compassion increase in this and every future life. May may I clearly perceive all experiences to be as insubstantial as the dream fabric of the night and instantly awaken to perceive the pure wisdom display in the rising of every phenomena. May I quickly attain awakening in order to work ceaselessly for the liberation of all sentient beings. So let's sit for a moment. <clears throat> 